0: Forget to put that on every single Sunday morning. Seems like you'd think you'd remember to do something after forgetting to do it for a long time, but I guess that just becomes muscle memory of forgetting. Well, this morning, like I said, we're starting a new series called The People of God, and we're going to be just kind of studying what it means to be the people of God. What does it mean to be the church? What does the church structure look like? What are we called to do? How are we called to serve him? How are we called to relate to one another? And, and to kind of break into that, the first thing we're going to be looking at this morning is what is called the three spheres of biblical authority. Um, it, it's what the Bible teaches about, uh, uh, about subjugating ourselves to different aspects of authority, and we're going to see governmental authority, family authority, and then the ultimate authority, and and how they all encompass one another and relate to one another. And so I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump on in and, and get started with this message this morning. Father God, as we study your word, I just pray that it comes alive and moves within us, that we see what you have to say, that we're moved by it, that we're impacted by it, that your spirit works in our lives today. God, help us to understand the difficulties of your word because there are some things that we wrestle with, some things that we struggle with, but, Lord, it is true. What you say is infallible, and it's timeless. And help us to wrestle with it and and grapple with it and grow closer to you with what you tell us through Scripture. Be with us now. God, fill this place with your presence. Speak through me. It's your son's name that we pray. Amen. Now, I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands, but just, you know, how many of you, when you were growing up, struggled with authority, struggled with authoritative figures? Maybe you got in trouble in school a few times. Maybe you got in trouble at home a few times. Maybe you got suspended for sitting in your boxers on a bus filled with guys instead of I don't know. That's not, not that that's a personal story or anything, you know. I'm not going to dig into that one. That one <laughs> that one would take a while. But I think a lot of us, as we're growing up, we have some tensions with authority. And, and I could, you know, write a book about the times that I struggled with authority growing up. It's just part of growing up and part of being an uh, obstinate person, I guess. But... All of us struggle with authority in some level or another, at some point or another, as we're grappling with what authority is. Now, I was looking up different stories of this, and I came across this really, this really funny story about a kid named Robert who, who he didn't have a father figure in his life. And oftentimes that can come be, cause or aid in someone to become a, a little unruly or, or rebel for different reasons, and, and he was no different. And it was a struggle to contain him. And his mom would take him to different doctor visits and stuff. And any time she took him to a doctor, it was a disaster. It was a nightmare. She would go, and he would just destroy the room. He would destroy the the confidence of the pediatrician. And one time, she took him to the pediatrician. And the pediatrician looked at his mouth and realized, he's got to have some cavities fixed, and he thought to himself, boy, I don't want to recommend him to any of my dentist friends because this is gonna ruin our workplace relationships. I gotta find the right guy to do it, and he found a a dentist that was supposedly known for doing well with kids, And, and this story that I have marks one of the classic moments in the history of human conflict. Robert arrives to the dental office, and he's prepared for battle, he sits down, or he, he gets into the office, and the, the dentist looks at him and says, Get in the chair, young man. No chance, replied Robert. Son, I told you to climb into the chair, and that's what I intend for you to do. Robert stared at his opponent for a moment and replied, If you make me get in that chair, I will take off all my clothes. The dentist calmly replied, Son, take them off. The boy then removed his shirt, his undershirt, his shoes, and his socks and looked up in defiance. All right, son, now get in the chair. You didn't hear me, sputtered Robert. If, if you make me get in that chair, I will take off all my clothes. Son, take them off. Robert proceeded to remove his pants, shorts, and finally stand as naked as his name day. He had taken off all of his clothes before the dentist and the assistant. Now, son, get in the chair, said the dentist. And Robert did as he was told. He sat cooperatively through the entire procedure. When the cavities were drilled and filled, he was instructed to get up out of the chair. Give me my clothes now," said Robert. I'm sorry. I, tell your mother we'll be keeping your clothes tonight. She can come pick them up in the morning. <laughs> well, that time, Robert had a uh, bout with authority and came out with a loss, I guess. I don't know. He came out learning a lesson. And actually, this is a true story. And his mom came back to the dentist and, and said, thank you. He does that every time we go out somewhere to get his way. He says, I'm going to take off on my clothes, and so I give him what he wants because I don't know what else to do, and you were the first one that stood up to him. And, and you know, the topic of authority can always potentially be a difficult one, especially here in America where, where we often struggle with determining to what extent we are to submit to the authority of the government, um, especially in, 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 as Christians And and we also struggle with another aspect of of authority that is potentially contentious, which is that of marriage and family and and what does Scripture say about authority in the marriage and how do we apply that, how do we understand that in the modern world. And people outside of our faith might scoff at what Scripture says about authority of of marriage and family. And beyond these, then, how are we to submit to the authority of God When there's other aspects of authority that we're also supposed to submit to at the same time. How are we supposed to layer these all on top of one another? And these themes within the topic of authority, like I said, they're called the three spheres of biblical authority. And this morning we're just going to study a little bit of them briefly in order to understand how we are to understand the Bible's teaching on authority as it pertains to the body of Christ. And so to start, we're going to be looking at Romans 13. So if you have your scriptures, turn to Romans 13. One of the more contentious pieces of authority within our faith today is that of government, especially with the COVID pandemic and everything that happened. There uh, there was this, this growing tension of how do we as the church continue submitting to God while also submitting to what the government our government, our, our, the people that are over us are saying. This is some real tension, some real qualms, some real things that we have to grapple with. And a lot of times we would turn to Romans 13, and, and we come to this passage here that says, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that, are, that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Now, you read that, and it's pretty clear on what Paul is saying about submitting to authority, and yet, we're left with some questions. What about tyrannical authority? What what, what about those during during World War II with, with Hitler's authority? Were they called to submit to that? Now, there's some qualms that we come to whenever we're reading a passage like this, especially in a day and age where the authority of government might step on parts of what we're called to do and believe as Christians. And so what do we do? How do we come to terms with the tensions that are the authority of government, the authority of scripture, the authority of God? How are we to understand all of these things? And the, 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 the answer lies... And what Paul says here, he says, let everyone submit to governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. Meaning our submission to government authorities is also a submission to the providence of God, to the ultimate authority of God. It's it's us saying, I'm going to submit to whatever government is over me, even if it might be in, in, in some aspect, that opposes me i'm not going to submit to it if it contradicts what i believe if it contradicts my adherence and and submission to god but i'm going to trust that god is still in control i'm going to trust that even if this authority is is hard to grapple with even if this authority opposes god i'm going to trust that god is the one that's in control And it might not seem that he's at work in this instance, but I'm going to trust that he is at work, that he is provident, that he is sovereign. And and my submission to this government isn't me saying that I trust this government more than I trust God, but that I trust God even amidst a government that might be opposed to him. And the best example I can give of this comes from Jeremiah. If you remember our past sermon series that we did on the history, you, you would recall that Israel had this split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They had abandoned God. The northern kingdom, as soon as they split, just went head over heels into following the other worlds around them. And eventually, they were exiled and and held captive by the Assyrian government. Eventually, the southern kingdom followed suit. and, And they started to abandon God. And they were held captive and exiled by the Babylonian government. Now, both the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they didn't fear God. They didn't follow God. They didn't adhere to to Yahweh. And yet, listen to what God tells the captive people here through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 29.4, it says, This is what the Lord God of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourself and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. Now, this seems to contradict what we might think God would say. We might think that God would say to the the Israelites who are being held captive by an unruly, uh, unrighteous, non-fearing people of God that God would tell them, okay, now go and rise up against them. Now go and, and, and tear down all of their idols, tear down all of their statues, tear out everything that opposes me. But what he says is, go and live. Go and live and serve me. Follow what I'm telling you to do. Pray to me on behalf of the place you're living. Call upon me. Essentially, he is saying, submit to the government, but don't forget that I'm still the one in control. And now, the issue that we come to is what happens if the government impedes upon what we believe, impedes upon what it means to follow God. And we'll get to that in a second. But the big idea here that Paul is getting to to the Romans that God is telling the exiles here in, through Jeremiah is that our call to submit to earthly governments isn't a call for us to go and worship the world. Isn't a call for us to go and fo- follow them blindly. But rather it's a call for us to submit to God's providence. Our call to submit to earthly governments is a call to submit to To the trust that God is still alive and at work, no matter what government, earthly government, we might belong to. We submit to his providence. That's what these passages are talking about here. And so we see this first level of authority, the level of the authority of a government, that we are to submit to government. We are to remain ruly. We are meant to, to pay our taxes, he later goes on and say, says in Romans 13. We, we are to do our due diligence as c- civilians. But all of these things that we do are under the umbrella of trusting that God is the one that is in ultimate control. So here, that's the first level of authority. Government authority is a way for us to submit to God's providence. What about family? The next sphere of, sphere of authority is that of family. And this is one that is, is rooted not just in reality, but in the spiritual nature of Christ and the church, and the spiritual nature of God and all of his creation. Family is a picture of the relationship between humanity and God. And I'll get to that through this passage in Ephesians. In Ephesians 5, starting in verse 21, Paul has this this beautiful piece of writing depicting what the church in Christ is and what the, the, the husband and wife is and how it all fits together. And a lot of times we get hung up on this because it uses language that we don't often get comfortable with in the modern day. This is a very important passage if we're to understand the relationship that we have with God and the relationship that Christ has with the church. It says in verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also are wives to submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, he did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members. Of his body. Now, the language that is used here, where it's wives submit to husbands, husbands love your wives. A lot of times we struggle with this because we are steeped in the Western world in individualism. I don't submit to anyone. Now I'm in control of myself. No one can tell me what to do. And Paul's not sitting here telling this as a way of saying that the wife is the slave of the husband. He's not saying that the husband tells everything that the wife gets to do. He's saying that it is a complementarian relationship, not an egalitarian relationship. And those are some big words, but it means this. The roles of the husband and wife are not equal. And to say that would be to diminish one another. I'm not able to give birth to Grayson. If I am then we would be able to say that we're egalitarian, but clearly I can't do that. So to say that we're equal in these roles, in these things, is just ludicrous. We complement one another. I watch Isabella with Grayson and what she does in raising him, and I think there's things that she does that there's no way I would be capable of doing. And there's things that I do around the house that Isabella would have to admit that there's probably some difficulty that she would have in doing. And what Paul is saying here isn't that wives are slaves of the husband, that they complement one another. And this is rooted in creation. If we turn to Genesis 1, it says here in Genesis 1, I'm going to give the history of the macro history and the micro history real quickly of God creating man and woman. It says in Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God. He created them, male and female. This is what is called the macro view of creation. This is the macro view of God creating man and woman. It's, it's God recalling, I created man. Mankind, humanity, that, that word that's used there isn't a, a blanket statement for just men. It's a blanket statement for humanity. I created them to bear my image. Meaning that they, over all of creation, would be what creation sees and witnesses me. That's why we're, when, we're, when, when God gives his commands in the Ten Commands, that's why we're not to make other idols. We're not to make images of him. Not because he doesn't want images made of him, but because he already created his image in us. We bear the image of God. We bear the authority of God over creation. Not just men, not just women, humanity. Now, how were they created? That's where we get to the micro of chapter 2. It says in chapter 2, verse 18... Then the Lord God, remember, he had created Adam and he had put Adam in the garden and he was to name everything and find a suitable helper for himself. A task that God knew Adam would not be able to do. He would not be able to find a suitable helper among other pieces of creation. And it says in verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought them each to the man to see what he would call it. And like I said, none of it worked out. So then in verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh in that place. And the Lord God made the rib that he had taken out of the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman. For she was taken from the man, and the two of them together become the image of God. The two of them together fulfill the picture of God governing over creation. It's not that Adam was the image of God. It's not that Eve was the image of God. It was that their complementarian relationship is the image of God. That is what is happening here in Genesis and that is what the biblical understanding of marriage and family is as Paul is writing about it in Ephesians when he says, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wives. This complementary relationship that is a picture of creation. That is also a picture of Christ and his church. That Christ is the head. That we follow him and we trust that he loves us and gave his life up for us the family structure of the bible the authoritative structure that is meant to work within family in this complementarian way is a reflection of god and creation and it's a reflection of christ and his church and so you have the second sphere the sphere of family Now, if you realize, both of these things are reflections on God's authority. Our our submission to government is a reflection of our submission to God's providence. Our submission to the family is a reflection on our relationship with God in creation and Christ in the church. And the reasons these reflections are there is because of the ultimate authority of God. And that ultimate authority is what we're called to live out as his church. And there's a beautiful example of this all coming together, of, of, of submitting to God over government, of submitting to God over family. Um, and this happens in the book of Acts. If you turn to Acts 5, we're going to close with this passage here. This is, remember, the, the disciples have become apostles, meaning the, the students have become teachers, The learners have become the sent-out ones. And they're going out, and they're teaching the gospel. They're teaching the life of Christ. They're following Christ's direction. And what ends up happening is they get arrested. They get arrested. They get thrown into prison. And it says in verse 17, as they're in prison, the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him who belonged to the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and said, Go out and stand in the temple and tell all the people about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. So they had been arrested. Obviously, the authoritative figures didn't want them preaching, and they arrested them. They were freed, and they immediately went and kept following God's instruction. And then, as it comes out more... It says that someone came and reported to the the Sadducees and the the religious party, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. Then the commander with his servants brought them in without force because they were afraid of the people. After they brought them in, they had had them stand before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest asked, didn't we strictly order you not to teach in his name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than people. And that there lies the final sphere and biblical authority. The the Sanhedrin was the religious authority of the Jewish people. Peter and the apostles, as, as faithful Jews, were to submit to the Sanhedrin. But they didn't. They were arrested by the Sanhedrin. They were freed by God. And they went back out and did what they were told not to do. And what's Peter's response? We listen to God, not you. Which is interesting considering we also are told that we're to submit to government. So where does this all, what happens here? Well, this is what we call stacking the authorities on each other. There should be a slide up there. Of this picture just go to the last slide of the pictures in the three spheres of biblical authority you have government family God and the one above it if the one below it intercedes either of the two below it intercede with it the one above takes precedence so where we're called to submit to government if government tries to impede upon God we submit to God if government tries to impede upon family we submit to family if family tries to impede upon God, we submit to God. And that's something, that's a difficult one. But the truth is, think about these apostles. They weren't single men. Peter had a wife, quite possibly had kids. We don't know. The Catholic Church believes he did. He submitted to God. God. He left his family. He was getting thrown into prison all the time. He was being stoned and and beaten and risking death every day because he submitted to God first. And that's an uncomfortable truth we often don't like to have. We can get behind submitting to God over government. You know what? Who cares about the government? They do everything we don't want to do. But when we say we submit to God even over family, that's a little uncomfortable. When we say, as believers, the church is our family. Sometimes that's a little contentious with what we want our family to be. Clearly, we submit to God in all things. If you look at the apostles in Acts 5.40... It says, after they called the apostles in and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. They, and then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. And every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued preaching and teaching, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So not only did the apostles submit to God, they joyfully submitted to God, even knowing that in their submission, life was going to get harder. Even knowing that in submitting to God, it might bring some difficulties upon their life and the family. Even in submitting to God, life here wouldn't be sunshine and rainbows. But they did it nonetheless. And not only did they do it, they didn't just say, oh, i got to follow what God's telling me to do again today. He they, they said, let's go. Let's get beaten for the name. Let's go and tell other people, and if they accuse us and flog us and stone us, we'll count it as doing good for the kingdom of God. That was the way they submitted to the authority of God. And the faith and the actions of the apostles of the early church I wonder, think about how much weaker the faith in action of the modern church is in comparison in many ways. And it's because we want to submit to other things. We want to submit to the world. We want to submit to our desires. We want to submit to anything, and oftentimes God goes to the bottom. Well, I'll submit to God whenever it's convenient for me. I'll teach other people about God whenever I'm not going to get ridiculed for it. I'll follow the directions of God whenever it doesn't impede upon me going to the lake, whenever it doesn't impede upon me having uh, an AAU game, whenever it doesn't impede upon me doing what I want to do instead. That's when I'll submit to God. I think the apostles would just laugh at us or cry. Because here they are submitting to the name, giving everything up without any regard. And they're not doing it haphazardly. They're not doing it begrudgingly. They're doing it joyously. So ask yourselves, is the way that the apostles submitted to God over all things, the way they live their lives, is that just as evident in the way we live out our lives and our faith? Because it's supposed to be. This doesn't change. This is the infallible, timeless Word of God. Are we submitting to Him joyfully over everything else? Or are we struggling to do so? Because he gave his life and he gave everything on our behalf. So that we can have an eternity with him. The least we could do is submit to him here. I'm going to close us in a word of prayer. And as we close, we're going to have one more song of worship. And I love this song of worship because it's a picture of the worship of eternity. It's called Revelation Song. It's the worship that is sung by the angels and the, peop- and, the, and, and, and the elders and the people in the book of Revelation, and it's a picture of what we'll be doing. But if you can't submit to God here, how easy do you think it'll be for us to submit to him for all of eternity? The apostles joyfully submitted to God here. And so their eternal worship of submitting to God was a fulfillment of What they were already doing. As we worship together, think about that. Have you given your life to Him fully? Not just saying, I accept you into my life, because that has to happen for us to get to eternity, but have you also given Him your life in submission? Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Father, thank you forgiving yourself for us. You were beaten, you were bruised, you were broken for our sake because you love us and help us, God, to be willing to forsake everything here in service and submission to you. To be a church that reflects the joyful submission of the apostles. Not a begrudging submission because it's what we're told to do, but a joyful submission because of what you have done for us. Thank you for bringing us into becoming your people. And bolden us and encourage us and strengthen us so that we might serve you always. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.